and this is something I've learned through sport, is you need to treat everybody differently. And the concept that you should treat everybody the same is a nonsense because everyone is different. Welcome to another instalment of What Matters, a podcast series inspired by a book of the same name. It's a book that navigates one man's lifetime of business and investing. I'm your host, Adam Spencer, and as always, I'm joined by that man. He's the author of What Matters, chairman of the Sydney Swans, and the co-founder of Molus Australia, which now, of course, has been rebranded as MA Financial Group. Andrew Pridham. You've brought along a special guest today, a friend. Who have you got there sitting to your right? Tom Harley, legendary AFL player, premiership captain and CEO of the Sydney Swans. How are we, Tom? Great to be here. Very nice. Thanks for dressing up for us, Adam, today. No trouble at all. It's a visual medium. <laughs> we, we are, we're, we're exploring the concept of lessons that can be drawn from sport and applied to business today. And you've got a 20-plus you know, year history, Andrew, in sport. Um, Tom played at the elite level, worked both for the AFL in general and now for the Swans. But it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I it's sometimes... I find the parallels that are drawn between sport and business to be a little bit clunky, often presented by a former player trying to justify a speaker's fee. At the same time, they're definitely there. How do you sort the wheat from the chaff in that space, Andrew? Well, it's pretty simple. I believe, strongly believe, having been involved in both business and sport, that they're completely different. Completely different? Completely different. There are many parallels. There are many lessons you can learn from one for the other, but they're completely different. The essence of them is different. And anybody who says, and I often hear this from, from people who become involved in certainly AFL, they'll say, it's just like business. And as soon as they say that, I know they don't know what they're talking about because it's nothing like business. You make the point that the, you know, the fans are in some ways the shareholders of the club. I like to explain to people, Tom, the thing I find fascinating about an institution like the Swans you have to run it like a business. There's money going and money going out. These things can go bankrupt. But at the same time, it's sort of like a business that has an AGM every Saturday afternoon at 4.30 p.m. that's watched by a couple of million people. And it's an AGM you clearly win or lose. And you have 23 of those back to back. So it's a sort of it's a weird hybrid space, isn't it? Well, I think the appeal for me being involved in sport is the, is the ebb and flow and the emotional ebb and flow. And, and to use the shareholder analogy, um, you can flip your shares around as you feel free. Some fair weather supporters will flip their teams around as they feel free. My seven-year-old's done that on a number of occasions <laughs> in the last couple of years. But for the most part, you've just got that elevated height and passion. That's sometimes intergenerational. You have, you have someone who supports a club because their great-great-uncle mm. played two games for that club in the 1930s. Our family is now wed to that club. I remember seeing, just on that point, changing tact a little bit, but I guess highlighting the passion and in a lot of instances, the lack of choice that you've got with your club. It was probably 10 years ago, there was a game at the MCG and they've panned the crowd after the game and the Tigers have been smashed, absolutely flogged. And there's Dad, who's probably 40 with his five-year-old son in tears and um, Dad would have joined the Tigers in the 80s, at the start of the 80s, but poor little Johnny has known nothing but despair. Um, little Johnny's probably feeling pretty good about himself now as a Tigers fan, but um, the passion is extraordinary. And I think one of the things that differentiates sport from business is, is that passion and then the direct correlation to immediate feedback, whether that's feedback on your performance, whether it's feedback on your clash strip that you wear, whether it's feedback on the membership card that comes out. It, it is constant. And, and, and as a member of a club, particularly members more so than fans, there's the 
clearly the emotional investment, but there is a financial investment through the membership and therefore a right to provide that feedback. And, you know, as I said at the start, the, the ebbs and flows of uh, the emotion involved in a sports club, that is what actually drew me back into, into sport after playing um, because there's something about the steady state that doesn't necessarily appeal, but it is, it is unique and times you love it, times you don't love it as much. But uh, you certainly know you're living. The, the Swans in, in the recent you know, trade exchange period, a, a very popular player at the Swans moved on. I won't get into that individual decision. That's no one's anyone's business. But knowing at the time when you make a decision like that, there's going to be a portion of the membership base who love that player and will just not listen to any reason as to whether that was a good or bad thing. Do you have to have a sort of resilience against the day-to-day direct feedback you might get? But at the same time, you can't not listen to a significant portion of your membership base or fan base if they're passionate about something, can you? Well, I think ultimately what the fans want is to win. And it's amazing how they they forgive things like trading players when you start winning. So our obligation as, as executives within or, or officials within a, a football club is one for it to remain solvent, and that's which is quite important, um, quite hard. And the other one is to win. Mm. That's our primary purpose and everything else is, mm. is is secondary. But so I remember when Tony Lockett came to the Sydney Swans from St Kilda. For people who don't know, legendary AFL players kicked more goals than any other player in the history of AFL and a gigantic high profile move of a player for him to come to Sydney. Arguably the best player ever, certainly yep. certainly in the conversation. And his move to Sydney is one of the most significant changes of club by a player in the history of the yep. competition. And changed the club in many ways. And he, in the last game he played in Sydney as a St Kilda player, he broke the jaw, I think, of one of our players in a, in a reasonably unfortunate incident. Might not have just been the jaw, I reckon. It yeah. was actually on. It was on TV yesterday. It was a, he would have been suspended Peter, for life. Peter, Peter Cavins, yeah. It, let's just say it wasn't the finest moment in Tony's career. He would say he was unlucky, but <laughs> he was hated by the Swans fans, hated. Mm. He couldn't have walked down the street without being attacked, I think. And the following season, we signed him and people were furious. And I think the first game he played with, we wouldn't have got to quarter time and everyone loved him. <laughs> loved him. Best thing ever. <laughs> so people move on pretty quick. One of the commonalities you do draw out, probably the thing that you say in sport most applies to business is the development of culture, maintenance of culture, a winning culture being something that can drive a sporting club and a business. What does culture mean in a sporting club, Tom? Because there's there's not a team in the AFL or any competition who'll say we don't have a culture. Mm, mm. And if you ask most clubs what their culture's about, a lot of it probably comes back to some fairly similar words about honesty and accountability. And how do you frame something that's genuine and works? Yeah, it's a good question and you're right, everyone talks about culture and you can go into any sports sports club in the world and into the change rooms and there'll be hard work, discipline, ruthless, accountability, you know, all of that sort of respect. stuff. I've got a, a very basic definition of culture. It's just the way you do things and it's hard earned over a long period of time but really easily lost. It's doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason. So in a football sense, you might be playing on the halfback flank um, and the right thing for you to do at that particular time is to cover someone's man and the reason you're doing that is so that you can turn the ball over and kick a goal, but having a really clear understanding as to why you're doing it. I think it's ultimately led by um, the senior people, senior leaders within the club and in the playing group that's the leadership group and then they pass that baton on, but they pass the baton on understanding that they're purely custodians for a point in time. And um, 
in my experience in the successful teams that I've been a part of um, in a playing career, but also at the Swans, it's actually having that understanding that you're when you are when you're a, a, I guess a, a flag bearer for the culture, it is for a period of time. It's an absolute privilege. It's not not a right. And your responsibility is to make sure that when you exit the place, you exit the place better than when you entered it, um, and you take that job very seriously. So, simply put, it's, it's just the way you do things, and and you can have good cultures. Everyone's got a culture. You can have good cultures and bad cultures, and it's what I find it's the it's the shock absorber, if you like, against the inevitable peaks and troughs in performance. Um, you know, the way we play in the most equalised competition in the world, we have salary caps, we've got staffing caps, um, we've got drafts, all of those sorts of things. It's actually designed to win a premiership every 18 years. Almost impossible to stay at the top forever. So then what can you can control? You can control the way you do things. You might not be able to control the talent you've got on your list all the time, but you can control the way you do things. And as I say, if you've, if you've got a good one, it's well-earned, it's hard-earned, and it can absorb some of the, uh, the shocks that ultimately will come your way. Just a quick stop during today's conversation because I wanted to remind you, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would like to learn more, you can head over to mafinancial.com slash whatmatters to access your copy of the What Matters eBook, a book that navigates a lifetime of business and investing. That website again, mafinancial.com slash whatmatters. Now, back to the conversation. Andrew, when you're managing a group of people, whether it's a sporting team or a business group, just on that and, and culture and the same rules and everyone has to be pointing in the same direction, how do you deal with the, the rogue genius? I've spoken to people like in the Australian cricket team, when you had a player like Shane Warne, who was a once-in-a-generation, possibly a once-in-the-history-of-the-game talent at the particular skill he had, and he could win games that no one else could. It's fairly good body of evidence that sometimes his attitude to aspects of you know, other things weren't possibly exactly where a team culture would be pointing. Do you have to give some geniuses like that a little bit of slack? I think it's challenging. And one of the things I talk about often, and this is something I've learned through through sport, is you need to treat everybody differently. And the concept that you should treat everybody the same is a nonsense because everyone is different. So I think you have to have broadly the same expectations and standards on behaviour and uh, there are certain no-go zones. But that said, you also need to be realistic about the differences in people. And, and one of the challenges, and you talked about culture in, in a sporting organisation, for example, you know, one of the challenges often is that you may apply different standards to the rogue genius in football or in business than you would to everybody else. And that's often demonstrated in, you know, if two players get up to mischief and do something they shouldn't do, how often does it appear that at some clubs it's the, the guy that's played three games and, you know, struggles to get into the team that gets heavily sanctioned and the superstar, you know, it's sort of waved through and you know, he wasn't actually the ringleader and he's okay. That sends a very bad example and that's that's always a challenge because in a high-performance sporting environment, you know, the coaches, they want to win, so they want to put the best players on the field. Um, and the same in business, you want to be successful, but ultimately... If you treat people so differently in terms of your expectations of behaviour that everybody can see that such and such gets away with, you know, very bad behaviour, then that rots the culture mm. from the inside very quickly and you can't allow that to happen. And, and I've certainly had times in business where, you know, we've had to exit people, for example, which is a nice way of saying firing somebody, um, part company, uh, early retirement, 
whatever you want to call it, because their behaviours were so poor that you could no longer accept it. Mm. And that's a hard, that's a really hard decision. There was a high-profile case in the Swans as well in the public arena of Barry Hall, of the, the full forward, who was still quite successful at kicking goals, had real trouble managing his behaviour and anger issues. He's since you know, acknowledged that. And the Swans famously, as a group, came together and said, "We just, we, you know, despite what he clearly brings on the field, in his first season away from the Swans, he kicked an absolute bucket of goals at his new club, and it would have been great for the Swans if he kicked that many goals for them that season. Mm. A decision was made that, on balance, that the the culture of the group was stronger without him there? I think that was a very difficult... I mean, Barry's a good friend of mine, yeah. so that was a very difficult decision. He'd been a premiership captain for mm-hmm. us. So um, at times those decisions have to be made, and I think... I've heard him since interviewed saying he absolutely thinks they made the right call at the time and he understands yeah, he's why very, they did. He, he's very pragmatic about it, and I think you know a, a lot of people are, a lot of people aren't. If you make those decisions, become very bitter. Mm. Um, but he certainly was, and... It's a funny thing because he was very popular with the players, so it's not like it, it's not necessarily how it appears in the mm. in the public. Just on that one thing, I was uh, someone who I've uh, used as a sounding board mentor over the years once said to me that if you ever wanted a quick sort of sense check, if you like, blink response sense check to an organisation's culture, it's the and this applies absolutely to footy clubs. It's the um, people they elevate to leadership positions. So they're ultimately the you know the champions of the culture and. To Andrew's point, there needs to be a foundation of non-negotiables, and I clearly wasn't involved at the, with the Barry Hall situation. But that that was if there was if there was to be an exit of, of Barry, that it would have been maybe incongruent to the foundations. But um, the important part is having those the foundations set, and then making sure that you champion the people or the players or the staff members who um, so elevate who champion the behaviours that you want to stand for, and where clubs get themselves in a bit of strife without naming clubs or organisations is when you elevate people of influence or leadership, which is ultimately influence, who don't hit those standards. Mm. Simply because they're a good player. Simply because they're a good player. And, you know, I was playing at a rival club um, when the Swans were clearly at the cutting edge of player culture and leadership. We should talk about that semi-final. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one that built the dynasty for the Cats up? No, no. <laughs> the... Uh, the um, and the, the point being with the Swans back in the early 2000s that ultimately culminated in the 2005 Premiership was it was it was clear that there was a shift, certainly from the outside perception, there was a shift from the best player being the captain to the most suitable leader being the captain. Because often these days if a club has a leadership group of six people, yeah. then at the end of the year that club announces their best and fairest and the top 15 players and all. No guarantee at all. In fact, you'd probably hope that mm. those two groups of six don't perfectly yeah. align. And so I think you've got – so then you've got – you know, you, 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 as I say, you're elevating what's important, which is that rock bed foundation. Um, and when you know you've got, you know, a, a real once-in-a-generation champion player, it's when, you know, top-end talent aligns with top-end cultural contributions. And, and if you look over the history of the game, there's not many that tick both boxes. You know, you've got to have the flawed genius in your team because they bring something that, you know, little straighty 180 Johnny doesn't. Um, but uh, the balance of all of that's really important. In fact, you say, Andrew, that when, when you compare the way that leadership that is rewarded, that there's an age bias sometimes in business that sport has transcended. You can be part of a leadership group at 22 years old and uh, all the way through to 33 is the youngest. You, you think actually you say that there's a far superior system employed in a lot of sports than in the case of business? Well, it's very sports. Very, one of the big differences between sport and business is the leaders in a sporting club in a playing sense are in their 20s. 
typically. I mean, they might be in their early 30s, mm-hmm. but they're in their 20s. Sometimes they might be 18, 19. Mm-hmm. And in business, I don't think you're even allowed to operate the photocopier until you're at least 23. <laughs> so it's very different in the sense of maturity levels. And that that's one of the, the challenges in sport. But it's also a very good thing because if somebody's got the ability, and you can see it when the kids come through the door, yep. can't you, Tom? Yep. You know, it's clear in the draft, you can see the ones who are going to be leaders. They just jump out at you. Yep. What can you see? Um, just a poise, just a maturity and a, an older head on young shoulders, or what is it? Yeah, I, I see a self-assuredness about it. I see a the clearly an inner drive to want to succeed, but an understanding that they're part of a bigger picture. And without, I don't, I don't want to sort of preordain anyone or, but. Callum Mills, when he walks into the footy club, he has a presence about him. He uh, obviously came through the academy system. He understands he's got a role to play. He's got an understanding that part of the role that he plays is influencing others. I, I think it's 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 that, as I say, that, that healthy balance between getting the best out of yourself and having a single-minded focus but understanding you're only one part of the cog. And, you know, the best leaders and most influential leaders I've seen have almost a service mentality. They're there to play a role. And I think one of the things when people come into a footy club also, which is similar to business in a sense, the, the ones who are likely to be successful and the real future leaders mm. are the ones that understand that getting there is just a step. Yeah. It's not, they haven't made it, you know, haven't made it. And, you know, clearly most of the kids that come into a footy club have been the best player at their school mm. or their club. They've won lots of awards, probably premierships, Everyone, you know, their hero and their wherever they come from, mm. and they get to a footy club and they sit their bag down and, and there's you know Adam Good standing there or mm. Lance Franklin, and they they're not so full of self importance that they think, mm. well, I'm an AFL player mm. now, I can mm. do whatever I want, mm. you know. Yep. Chuck some rubbish on the floor, someone will pick that up. Mm. You know, they're actually no, I've started again, and some of the great leaders of the past at the Swans, I, I remember. Um, guy called Dougie Atkinson, who used to be the property Office, steward, yeah. it was called. But Logistics coordinator now. Production <laughs> manager, <laughs> yeah. um, fancy name. And I remember him telling me that the players that he rated, and it's always a good mm. measure when you talk to these guys who are actually the ones that clean up the rooms and get the water out. And the players that would um, help, for example, load the, the bags onto the bus mm. and stay back and help. You know, guys like Paul Kelly, who was a Brownlow medalist, you know, le- legendary player. It's become a bit of a cliche, but they say now one of the clubs in the AFL does it and they got it from the All Blacks that the most senior players in the team's job is to... Sweep the sheds. ...last ones to leave to make sure the dressing room's in mm. been left in a decent condition. Mm. That shows a certain humility on their part, but also as a junior player... That's the way things are done. You're not going to leave a bottle down there if you know your captain's going to be the one cleaning up and that and simple things like that can genuinely permeate an organisation. We're definitely not introducing that at Miles Australia. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it just sounds like a stupid idea to me. But. When it comes to embedding culture and reinforcing culture, you have a bit of a look at the, the great business institution of the off-site. And it's fair to say you're, you're fairly blunt in your assessment of the off-site. A lot of the time it, it doesn't work and you say there's only two forms an off-site should take. Team building or a senior executive only role, team building, don't get too carried away, don't put too much on the agenda. Are you, are you a fan of the offside if done properly? You're fairly, you're fairly directing your feedback towards yeah, the player no, offside. And Tom probably... Can I jump in for one second? Probably Because obviously I've read Andrew's um, What Matters and this section on the offside now, it's the light bulb moment. So that's, that's why I've never got much traction talking about offsides <laughs> with, <laughs> with Andrew. 
when all else fails and you've got no other ideas in business or sport, have an offsite. You know, what could go wrong? Um, I'm not overly a fan of offsites, and and uh, I've been to far too many of them over the years, and I've seen everything at offsites. I've seen golf carts driven into lakes. I've seen, <laughs> you know, I could bore you forever with with humorous stories about offsites. I can tell you stories about waking up in the morning uh, after the the night before and turning my phone on and text messages going off, and I'm going, oh my god, what has happened? And you read them and you go. <sighs> um, so there's a lot of risk in offsites, and I'm mm. a risk manager, really, in life. <laughs> if if done properly, what can so, they bring? So the, the two types of offsites, I think, the true purpose of most offsites, particularly if if there's a broad audience and you've got a lot of staff there, it's a reward. It's about team building. It's about having a bit of fun, and so that's what to me. If that's what it's about, do that. Don't spend two days. You know, with the CEO doing presentations and going through all the numbers, and everyone's bored out of their brains. You've got the receptionist there sitting there with the, you know, the most senior people. Very diverse audience. They're not interested. Right? Just accept that it's boring. Don't do it. Do some team building. You know, and and I don't necessarily. I'm not even a fan of all the stupid team buildings people do. Like, you know, getting bits of string and seeing if you can turn it into a nuclear rocket or something. You've never stood in a truss circle and just fallen backwards knowing your, your no, executive management will, will catch you? No, well, there's a bit of famous examples of that in uh, football, but uh, <laughs> yes. those sorts of things. But There was a fire walk that went wrong once. Fire walk. I've been in, um, I've been in a, an off-site outside of Vegas in the desert with Bear grills. People <laughs> people being asked to eat cockroaches and spiders and I just sat there and they said, now you eat it and this is a show you know, that you're yeah. part of the team. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not doing it. And I remember getting back and Ken Mollis, we'd have to go two hours of the bus to go out to this offsite, and he, and everyone was going, oh, that was great, that was great. And we were sitting there having, and it was Steve Wynn from Wynn Casinos, and Steve said to me, how did you find the Bear Grylls thing? And I said it was absolute joke, complete waste of time. And you know what? Everyone at the table went, it was actually, and this is after they'd saying how good it was. Yeah. So everyone thinks the same things about things. If you're there to have a good time, have a good time, team build, have dinner, you know, whatever. But don't expect to you know, come up with the, the new way of business. If you want to do that sort of stuff, if it's a real business issue you want to solve, my answer is they can be useful. Have a very narrow agenda. Get the most senior people and focus on the most important thing. Don't try and solve everything because you won't do it. Hope you're enjoying the What Matters podcast as much as we're enjoying bringing it to you. If you've listened across the series, you've picked up many great tips on how to be successful as a leader, as a business mind, and as a person. In episode six of What Matters, entitled People Management and Leadership, Andrew reveals to us his killer technique for dealing with a staff person who just won't listen. They really have to take me seriously because I'm getting to a point where I'm pretty friendly and pretty nice, but when I snap, it could be all over. And I didn't want that to happen. So the technique I developed, which I've used many times, is I started the review, and for those listening that aren't involved in big business, we have what are called 360-degree reviews. Mm. And, of course, Adam, mathematician, you mm, can tell that's us. That's a full circle. It's almost a full circle, yeah. as I say. In a 360 review, what occurs for those that aren't familiar is you get reviewed by people who report to you, who are your peers, and those that you report to. So I sat down with this person, 
and said, one thing is clear in all of the reviews of you, and that is that you're incapable of taking constructive criticism. That's episode six of What Matters, People Management and Leadership. Make sure you check it out. Now, back to our conversation. Within a sporting group where you already have competition and team play and there is a team, how do you build those deeper bonds within that group? And can you build bonds that will transcend and bring reward in the sporting arena? It's interesting. I think um, as, as a player, I played... Uh, started my career just at the precipice of full-time professional mm. sport in the mid to late 90s and then by the time I finished and where it is now it's it's full-time and it's professional back when I started to Andrew's point the team bonding part was important because you only trained on a Tuesday and a Thursday and there was a bit of a different culture and those sorts of things whereas now these players spend or particularly this season in the hub they spend every waking moment with living in each other's pockets they probably don't need to spend any more time team building and so therefore it's almost gone the other way where um yeah let's bundle it all, all under the title of offsites the football departments now particularly the coaches and players have offsites every day they will dissect the game from the weekend they'll strategize for the game coming up um and they need to be very focused and specific and punchy um because their time's precious and uh part of i guess making sure the morale and the the bond of the players is maintained in a professional sports era now is to do the opposite, is to get away, is actually to get away from each other. Because you do, you have, you have an, and I presume this happens in business as well, but there are some players for whom their biggest problem is they don't stop thinking yeah. about the game and yeah. over-analysis yeah. and they've, the, the cliches, played the game four times in their head before mm. the weekend or will still be sweating on Wednesday mm. night about one poor kick mm. they did. And a real skill is flicking the switch off. Yeah going for a walk, watching something on TV, like indulging in some hobby or part-time job or something that will take your mind, because you can't concentrate on that in 168 hours a week. Yeah, I think I'm one of the most fortunate people going around that I've been able to have a career both on and off the field in in AFL. I, lo- I love it. I'm a fan of the game. Um, uh, but there are times when, you, you know, things get a bit challenging and tiresome and I will tend to not watch the footy frenzy <laughs> if, if that's happening. Um, you go the other way. You, you do go the other way. But I think I think what's important to make sure you keep that balance is if you go the other way, that's fine. Don't then drown in it when you're going well because, you know, you, you'll have these wild swings. Like if we're, you know, hopefully this year we go on a 10-game winning streak. I'm not going to read every newspaper article through that 10-week period um, because if we go on a 10-game losing streak, that is absolutely true. You know, it's, it's, I find it amusing when you hear commentators talking about what the runner might be saying to a player and they've got no idea what they're saying. Mm. Or when you go into the rooms after a game, that's probably the most exciting time, of, I think, mm. either mm. before or after. Yeah. But yeah. you go to the rooms after the game and you're chatting to the players. You know, one of the privileges you get being involved is you, you, know, you can chat to them. And people often say to me, oh, what you know, were you talking about that kick he did? Or the, and most of the time it's they're saying, oh, what do you reckon about these shares? You know, should I buy? It? You, know, it's, you know, I'm looking at a house. Would you mind coming and looking? Yeah. It's they don't want to talk about no, footy, no. and so most of the time you spend with professional footballers, yeah. you yeah. don't talk about footy. You talk yeah. about everything else. Most of the time you spend with investment bankers, you don't talk about investment banking. Mm. You're talking about sport. <laughs> so, and yeah. you know, so that's the weird. We live in a weird world. Yeah. yeah. The change from the old era to today. One thing in in the world of sport that I find fascinating. I think there is a parallel here in business when it comes to motivating people. And you would have started back in the day where if you were underperforming, and the feedback's very direct. If you, yep. if you're underperforming halfway through the first quarter of a game, yeah. 
I can't wait till the three monthly review to raise that with you. You need to know yeah. directly. But there yeah. used to be a time where the way to do that was the good old fashioned coaching spray yeah. and in front of the rest of the group of players, yeah. line you up and between the eyeballs, yeah. question your attitude, yeah. your, your courage, whether your parents had actually met before you were born. Like nothing was off limits. Yeah. These days, I get the impression just a lot less of that happens. Have, has it has it more than you think? It's not reserved for the players either. <laughs> but that role of just just unbridled anger as as a motivational tool. Have have we evolved on that? I think the evolution is more around the type of players that are coming through. It is professional now. You've got to you could as I say you could have the spray on the Saturday night. You won't see the coach until the Tuesday. You can probably avoid him until the Thursday if you really wanted to. And then the so, heat's gone out. Of the heat's situation. gone out of it. Uh, whereas now there's there's a lot more investment in the you know the player coach relationship. But I, I do remember two brutal sprays from back in the day. One was was a bit earlier on. One was in my last game. Um, but Your last game. I'll tell, the first one was we're playing a game. We're getting absolutely smashed by the Brisbane Lions, who were a pretty good team at the day. And um, the coach has gone through all of us, you know, individually. Pretty much, it felt like. And I was one of the last ones, and, and he sort of got to me and said, blah, 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 you, you know, you, you're doing this, you're not doing this. You, you. And you're thinking this is my last game. And I was probably thinking this is my <laughs> last game. And, I, and I, I just had enough. And he said, Tom, are you doing it? And I was just stared at him and said, obviously not. And I thought, oh, probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> probably shouldn't have said that. But the point being after the game, I think it might have been the Monday, I, I thought I've got, to, I've got to broach this with the coach. That was just blatantly disrespectful. My teammates saw my response. He had no recollection of that conversation at all, mm. and that, that's I think important to note. And you're going to get that from experience that when you cop, when you know coaches are under intense pressure. The other example, same coach, last game, it was a grand final, um, reasonably big stage, and uh, <laughs> we were told at the MCG that you had to press the button on the phone to talk to the box. And I, as back then, there weren't as many rotations, and clearly they've been dropped again uh, as recently as yesterday. But the uh, the so I've, I've been taken off the ground early on in the game, and Bomber, the coach, picks up the phone. I want to talk to Tom. I was captain, and he has just gone off on a massive rant. And I'm talking back. I'm saying, "Yep, yeah, understand. Yep, yeah, okay. No, nah, won't happen again. Yep, yeah, mate." And then he's saying, "Can you hear me? Can you hear me?" And then it just went silent and I put the phone down and I thought, oh, I didn't press the button once. <laughs> so so he's, he's, he's just, he just get, got louder and louder and louder because I gave him no response. You don't have to be smart to be a footballer. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, guess, I guess it's I tell those stories because um, it comes with experience that in the heat of the moment, mm. things get said. Now, that doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but things get said and with maturity you can, you can roll with the punch. I mean, for those listening... To give you an example of what it's like so you really understand, after a game, the team goes down. If they win, mm. they sing the song. Mm. This is in AFL. And then they go into a review by the coach. Mm. And if they've won, it's usually a pretty mm. happy place. Yeah. If you've had a bad loss, and this happens probably on average twice a year, I reckon, mm. when you have a really bad loss, you go into the room, the door's shut, the television cameras are pushed out, doors are shut. And anyone who's watched the movie The Downfall and Hitler's Bunker scene. <laughs> that's that's become a, the famous meme. That is a mild version of what occurs. <laughs> and the paint is blistering off the walls. And it, it, it's quite extraordinary. Mm. Now, to bring it back to business, 
if you did that in business, there'd be so many fair work claims against you, you couldn't do it. Mm. But in football, mm. it happens. Mm. And you can't do that in business, and business is a lot calmer. But um, it is interesting what you say, yeah. Tom, that the coach doesn't even remember. No, I've had Sprague from our coach as chairman, and he said he doesn't remember them. I, I spoke to a, a Swans player who played. Uh, Paul Ruse was the coach who you know, won the premiership in 2005, and he played under the previous coach, Rodney Eade, as well, who was well known as someone who could get quite intense in his feedback. He was actually in Hitler's bunker. <laughs> <laughs> telling, telling Hitler, come on, lift your game. But uh, the player who I knew had said that he was on the receiving end of a couple of very direct addresses from Rodney in front of the group, and he said, to be honest, after the third or fourth run in your career, they started to lose the ability to really motivate you anyway because you realised it was probably just my turn. Mm. And he said one time after, at, at halftime in a game, Paul Ruse looked at him, and shrugged his shoulders yes. and looked away. And that motivated him and made him realise I have mm. not earned the respect of someone I really value. What am I doing wrong here? And made him examine himself far more than having all sorts of questions raised about his parentage or whatever in front of the group mm. ever could. And that there's there's an... Well, I think different, it's like I said earlier, you've got to treat people differently because some people, if you screamed at them, mm. they would break down in, yep. you know, in a ball of you know tears mm. and others will lift yep. and others will just... Ignore it. Do, mm. do the opposite. Mm. Um, and I know that you know we've got a couple of former AFL players working you know, here. And one of the things that's great about them is you can give them much more robust feedback because yeah. they're used to it. Mm. Mm. That's a really interesting observation because they've had five, ten, fifteen years in in the absolute pressure. Yeah, you can you can just say, look, just come here. Mm. Look, what you did there was absolute rubbish. Mm. It's not good enough. You know, to get this. Da, 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 and they'll just go, okay, no problems. Whereas others, if you mm. said that to them. That'd be, yeah. you, know, be, you know, they might resign. They'd be mortally offended. I think it's a really good point. And, and, and this is one of the things when I've made the transition out of playing, uh, particularly as a captain and a standard setter, to a nine-to-five job. And so you're sitting there and you might be interviewing a staff member for a job or, or just doing a, a review. And almost to a person, it's, I love feedback. Great. Okay. You're not going so well. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Whereas, whereas I love I, positive feedback, <laughs> and then he goes, "Oh no, 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 positive reinforcement." I said, "Well, you got to. It's got to go both ways." And I agree with Andrew. We at the Swans, uh, when Kieran Jack retired, so captain of the club, um, absolutely self-made career, driven, high standards. Um, he started in our commercial department. He studied and completed an MBA, so he had the qualifications. I remember chatting to the the GM of the commercial department. Said, "We're going to back Kieran in," and oh, but he hasn't had experience in agents. I said, "He'll work that stuff out in a month." But what he will bring is he'll bring standards, he'll bring professionalism, he'll bring resilience. And these are the things when you talk to players, you know, the, the couple here at Molus are great examples. What made them great footballers were things that you don't learn at university. Conflict resolution, resilience, professionalism, going the extra yard, understanding what it, what it really means to work in a team, bringing out the best of others around you. Um, and, and I say to players when they transition out of the game, don't underestimate those skills. You, you walk in your first job and after a, a year, you'll look back at some of those first emails you'll send and be so embarrassed with your tone and you know th those sort of hard skills that you need to learn on the job. But don't undersell the soft skills that you've got because no one else within that organisation, whether they've been there for one year or 15 years, will have the same experiences that you've had. Um, so I think what Andrew's doing here with the, the crew that you're, you're bringing in, they're bringing something... Uh, that uh, you don't 
you don't learn anywhere else other than a high-performing sports well, team. One, one thing they understand intimately is team environment. Yep. You know, that, that's their life. They've always been in a team yep. and discipline. You know, if they haven't got those two things, they haven't played 200 AFL games or 100 AFL games. Yep. Let me ask you in closing, Tom, as, as a statistical fact over the last couple of seasons, the Swans have not won as many games yep. as over any couple of seasons in the 15 years previous. What is the role of culture in a team or in a business that's not at the peak of its game now? Yeah, as I said at the start of the chat, I, I think it's the rock bed uh, and the shock absorption for those peaks and troughs. We're all competitors. Um, the role that I'm in, first and foremost, is I'll, I'm in my role for the team to win games of football and get back up the ladder as quick as possible. And we are in a cycle at the moment at the Swans where we're investing in youth. Um, we're bringing a core group together. We need unwavering faith that that core group is ultimately going to get there. If you don't have that rock bed culture foundation, basically your DNA, and the Swans have got as strong a DNA as any club in the competition, um, you can't have any confidence that you'll just you won't keep going down. Whereas if you're confident that you've, you know, someone said to me once, um, and this is more not recruiting players but recruiting staff, that it only takes five minutes to recruit someone and then five years to get rid of them if they're no good. So recruit the right people, induct them the swan's way, um, give them an opportunity to be the best they possibly can. And if that rock bed or foundation is solid enough, you're more than, more than likely going to ultimately succeed. So I think that's, you know, you're absolutely right. We should never be satisfied with missing two years of the finals. But as long as we've got confidence in the people that we bring in, the way we induct them, um, the standards that are set by the leaders so that then you can get that spike as quick as possible. And it's a competitive game. That's what draws us all in. We want to win. Simple as that. I think what it reminds you is exactly the same in business is that success is not ordained. You don't have a right to, to no. be successful. And in business or sport, you're operating in an environment where you've got competitors who want to win just as much as you do, sometimes more. They're working hard. You've got to keep doing the basic things and just turning up. Mm. And then if you keep doing the right things, mm. you get better and then you'll, you'll win again. But mm. the challenging thing is always is keeping people up and motivated when things aren't going well, yeah. um, which Tom does brilliantly. And this year, you know, a good example with, with COVID and mm. all the challenges um, is keeping people optimistic that the good times will come. Well, I'm looking at the clock. The siren has sounded. It's time for us to go and sing the club song and <laughs> spray each other with Gatorade. It's been fascinating as always, Andrew. Tom Harley, thank you so much for your insights into the world of business and sport. Thank you, Adam. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining today's episode of What Matters. And don't forget, head over to mafinancial.com slash whatmatters to download your copy of the ebook. Be sure to subscribe to What Matters. We'll see you next time for our final episode where Andrew and I will be discussing self-management. There'll be some laughter, maybe some tears in our final episode of What Matters. What Matters.